Good morning again. If you showed up late, my name is Shane Hatfield. I'm the campus minister here. I'm going to be bringing God's word to you this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 12. Um, this semester at RUF, we studied the book of Acts, and this was our last sermon. Uh, I've been able to preach a few of those for you guys um, throughout this semester, so I'm excited to bring this, uh, this last sermon to you. Our RUF Bible studies have ended. Uh, there's only two weeks of school left for the students. They have dead week and then finals week. And then after that, we will go to RUF Summer Conference where we will um, uh, worship and rest and play on the beach. And then we'll send our students out to do their various uh, homes and jobs and internships and all those sorts of things. So over the next couple weeks, please pray for our students as they try to finish up school. Uh, please pray for those who are graduating and moving on. And then... Um, Pray for us as we go to summer conference. It's a very pivotal time in a lot of students' lives. Uh, there'll be students going of all different, um, all different places in their walk with Christ, and we just want that to be a time uh, that's encouraging. Uh, next week, I believe we're going to have finals care packages for the students. So come uh, ready for those and bring friends. Uh, also, you know, next week, Ryan, let's make a note. We should pray for our seniors who have been coming and who are going to be graduating and moving on. I know we have a few of them. Uh, Landon and Christian and Megan and Joe, and so maybe some more. So let's remember to pray for them next week. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of where we are in RUF. Uh, we're going to be looking at Acts 12 this morning, and since we've sort of been uh, hopping through here, I want to give you just a little bit of background, a little bit of context to Acts chapter 12, um, so that way you kind of understand uh, where we're at and what we're talking about. But Acts 1, 8 gives sort of the overview and the outline of the book of Acts. Okay? Acts 1.8, Jesus says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And he's saying that the church is going to carry the gospel out to the ends of the earth. God is on a mission. His mission is to spread his good and glorious kingdom to the ends of the earth. His vehicle is the church. And the church is going to take out that mission as his witnesses. So you see that all through the book of Acts. In the beginning, you see the gospel go to Jerusalem. You see the gospel go to Judea. And then a few weeks ago, we studied uh, Acts chapter 8, where we saw the gospel go to Samaria. They believed the gospel, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. Then Acts chapter 9 shows the gospel going to Saul who is God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. You see, God is preparing the way for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Then in Acts 10 and 11, you see the gospel go to Cornelius. Peter reveal, or God reveals to Peter in a vision that the Gentiles are no longer to be considered unclean, that God has made them clean, and that he needs to take the gospel to them. So he takes the gospel to Cornelius and some Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit falls on on him, and the church sees that and says, God has granted even to the Gentiles repentance unto life. We got Acts chapter 12, and then Acts chapter 13, there's a major change in the book of Acts where we begin to see Paul on his missionary journeys take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. Well, in that transition period, we have this Acts chapter 12, which acts as a bridge between the ministries of Peter and Paul, and between the gospel going to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And it's also a bridge in terms of opposition to the gospel. 
Uh, in 1 through 11, you pretty much see most of the opposition comes from inside the religious community. But starting in 12 and then increasingly in 13 on, you see the opposition begins to come from outside the church, from the culture around the church. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, sort of the central question that I want us to look at and examine and hopefully answer some in this passage is this. Um, How do we live in a world that is opposed to Christ and his people? How do we live in a world that is opposed to Christ and his people? Uh, And I read an article this week that sort of prompted this question. It was an an op-ed in the New York Times, and the writer uh, was basically addressing this question. and, And the writer said that if we want to live and have a witness in a world that opposes Christ and his people, then the message of the church has to be one that's different. And that message, this author said that message needs to be about the family. We need to present the family as something that's different than the culture around us. Now, I don't, I don't want to go into the pros and cons of, of that sort of, their sort of point. But as I read the article and as I, this author sort of laid out its, its case, I thought, how do I live in a world that opposes Christ? How do we live? What does that look like in Stillwater, Oklahoma? What does that look like on campus? So that's the question that we're going to tackle this morning. And I'm going to do things a little bit differently. I'm actually going to read a chunk of Scripture and then make a point, and read a chunk of Scripture and then make a point, because this passage is rather long. So let's start trying to answer our question here. Uh, Look at Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews... He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. So this passage starts out, and Luke tells us, that Herod, who was the king at that time over the region, the Roman king, wanted to kill, wanted to stop the church, right? He was seeking the approval of the Jews. He was seeking to consolidate his power. So he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop the church. He gets James. He kills James, who was one of the three that was close with, with Jesus, uh, James, John, and Peter. He sees that, that the Jews really like that. So he says, I'm going to get Peter too. And I'm going to uh, kill him, but he can't kill him right at that time because it's during the Passover. uh, And the Jews would not like that too much if you killed one of their people during the Passover. So he's got to wait. So he puts Peter in prison, intending to bring him out after the Passover and give him over to the people and presumably kill him. What does the church do in the midst of this persecution? What does the church do as they're surrounded by Uh, a a king and a kingdom and people that want to destroy them. They pray. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That's why I think the first thing that we have to do as we live in a world that opposes Christ and the church is pray. Sounds simple, right? Sounds, (laughs) Sounds cheesy, sounds easy, maybe even sounds cliche. But prayer is the way that God's people 
connect with him. And prayer is the way that God's people trust him. And in God's wisdom, in his power, and his glory, prayer is the means by which God wants to accomplish his purposes. So God, God has a plan, and he's ordained not only the end, which is how things are going to turn out, but he has also ordained the means by which that happens. And the means by which that happens is prayer. God is going to work in this world through the prayers of his people. Now, I don't know about you, but that's hard for me to believe. That is not something I do. You know, probably one of the number one uh, confessions I get as a minister is uh, people t- often tell me that they don't pray enough. Right. And maybe you sitting there think, well, I don't, I don't pray enough either. I'm not sure I've ever met anybody that said, yeah, I pray a lot. Right? Like, I, my prayer life's good. Right? Um, I, I think simply... Um, what this teaches us is that when we encounter opposition from the world, when we encounter opposition at work or at school or even in our home, in our own hearts, wherever we see opposition to Christ, our first response ought to be to pray. Right? That is an occasion. That's a reminder for us to pray. Uh, in his book on prayer, uh, Tim Keller tells a story uh, about his wife, Kathy. She was going through uh, Tremendous physical suffering. Um, she, was, she was very stricken, and uh, she needed to pray. She wanted to pray. And she didn't think that Tim really got it. She didn't think that he really understood how important it was for them to pray. And so he said, she, she gave him an illustration. She said, let, let me put it to you this way. Imagine that you had a sickness, and that sickness was going to kill you. And the doctor came to you and said, I've got a pill that will keep you from dying. But you have to take this pill every day. And if you, don't, if you take this pill, you're going to live. But if you don't take this pill, you're going to die. What would you do? And Tim said, well, of course, I would take the pill. And she said, exactly. That's how I feel about prayer. Tim, if we don't pray, I am going to die because of this sickness. I just cannot take it. If we don't pray and depend on the Lord in a world that opposes Christ, we will die. Our souls will shrivel up. Because if we're, if we're not praying, what are we depending on? What are we looking to? We're looking to our own strength. We're looking to our own intelligence. We're looking to our own effort. And if it's up to us, then we're in trouble. But it's up to God. If we're, if we're praying and we're tapping into his strength, his might, his wisdom then we're going to live, and we're going to thrive, and we're going to grow. So that's the first thing we see, that we live prayerfully. The second thing uh, we see, we're going to look at verses 6 through 19. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, 
Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing, recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so and kept saying, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So God miraculously delivers Peter from prison. Herod does everything he can to ensure that Peter is safe, or I guess captured, not really safe, but captured, that, that Peter doesn't leave so that he can bring him out and kill him. He has four squads of soldiers. I don't know what the numerical equivalent of that would be, but it sounds like a lot. Guard, he's got four squads of soldiers guarding him. He's in prison, you know, probably shackled, probably chained up, right? We know that he's, yeah. Yeah, the chains fell off. He's got chains on him. He's got two soldiers that are guarding the door. He's got two soldiers, uh, one on each side. You know, he's sitting in the middle of them. Herod does everything he can to assure that Peter cannot escape. And what happens? Peter escapes. The Lord sends an angel who comes and frees Peter. I love the fact that Peter was asleep and the angel had to poke him, like wake him up, right? Isn't that funny? How could Peter sleep knowing that he was going to be killed? Peter um, also knew that no matter what, that his life was in God's hands, that he could trust God with his life that there were promises that, that God had made and that God would keep. One of the promises that God made and that God keeps is that we will be his witnesses. Look, Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Notice it doesn't say you might be my witnesses or you could be my witnesses. Or you'll probably be my witnesses. It says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then here we have Herod saying, no, you're not. You're not going to be God's witness. Well, I'm going to stop the church. And God has said, nope, the church is unstoppable. You cannot defeat the church. You cannot defeat my people. You may have uh, killed James, which he didn't actually die. We learned last week. He fell asleep. And he presumably went to, be, went to be with the Lord. But you can't stop Peter. You can't stop the church. You're not going to stop my commands. My word will go out. My people will grow and expand. And my kingdom will succeed. That's God's promise. That in the midst of a world that opposes Christ and opposes the church and opposes God, God's plan is unstoppable. His mission is unstoppable. The gospel will go out. The kingdom will will expand. Uh, if you look on the front of your bulletin, uh, John Stott describes this great reversal that took place in this chapter. I'm not going to read all of it. I just want to read uh, the end of it. 
Actually, I might read the whole thing. No, I'm not. Um, skip down to the middle. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken and their pride abased. If I had to add anything, I would say, and the church will go free. Um, So how do we live in a world that opposes Christ and his people? We live confidently, knowing that God's promises cannot be stopped. They can't be thwarted. And you see that the Romans, not only at this time, tried to stop Christ and his church, but they continued to try to stop Christ and his church. Uh, In 64 AD, uh, Nero was the emperor. He blamed Christians for trying to burn Rome. And so the Christians suffered persecution because of that. Um, it, and actually the rumor was is that Nero started his, the, the fire on his own, right? He started the fire that burned Rome. But he tried to blame Christians. And then in 81 and 96, you have the emperor Domitian, who also persecuted Christians. Um, after that, from uh, 111 to 113 AD, a uh, profession of faith in Christ was made a capital offense. They weren't necessarily seeking Christians out to kill them, but if, they, if you made a profession and they knew you were a Christian, then they could kill you. Uh, in 156 to 160 AD, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was martyred. Uh, 249 to 251, uh, there was an emperor named Decius who was a very, very uh, cruel tyrant who was persecuting the church, killing God's people. And then in 284 to 285, a man named Diocletian, Uh, waged a full-scale, systematic persecution of the church. They destroyed buildings. They confiscated Christian books. uh, They dismissed Christians from their political positions. They imprisoned and killed Christians for refusing to sacrifice to pagan gods. But despite all that, the church continued to grow. The church continued to expand. The word of God continued to go out. And then you see that great reversal happen. In 312, what happens? the Roman Emperor Constantine becomes a Christian, and for better or worse, Rome becomes a Christian empire. So you see this this great reversal of the people who are opposing Christ, the people who are trying to stop the church and destroy the church, they themselves are overthrown or they themselves are converted because God's mission is unstoppable. And that, knowing that, knowing that God's mission is unstoppable gives us the confidence the grace and the humility to endure whatever this world has to throw at us. As I was reading, um, uh, you know, through one of my church history textbooks, because I don't, I don't know if you all know this, but I don't just read church history. It's one of my weaker areas. But I was trying to read up on some uh, to get some information uh, for the sermon. I was also emailing Thomas and Richard Bowles to try to get information from them because they're our, our history guys. Uh, but as I was reading and studying and trying to learn, I came across the story of Perpetua, uh, or Perpetua, I'm not quite sure how you say that, Perpetua, but she was a, uh, a young Christian woman that converted to Christianity in the third century. She converted and it angered her father and he hated it. And she is eventually captured and taken to prison for her faith. And while she was in prison, she had her nursing child there with her. Eventually, she was brought out. She was put on trial. She was asked to sacrifice 
to the, the pagan gods, and she said, no, I won't do it. Her father even came to the trial and came with a baby and said, please, perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. The emperor looked at her and said, have pity on your baby, baby and your father. She, they're doing whatever it takes to try to get her to sacrifice to this pagan god. And she says, I will not. And the emperor says, are you a Christian? And she says, I am. And at that moment, they condemned, they condemned her to be thrown to the beasts. And she says that they left the trial in high spirits. And she was consoled by the fact that her baby got to come with her and be with her in her suffering. How in the world could somebody endure that kind of persecution, that kind of suffering, only because of the confidence of knowing that God's plan is unstoppable and that she is Christ and she is going to be with him when she passes away? Um, so we live prayerfully, we live confidently, and then thirdly, we see we live differently. Uh, look at verses uh, 20 through 23. What happens to Herod? Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him in one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country, depending on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. It's, this passage is interesting because it feels like you see, you see two kingdoms. You see the contrast of two kingdoms side by side. And here, Herod represents the kingdom of man, right? What does the kingdom of man live for? The kingdom of man lives for its own glory. Who represents the kingdom of man? Earthly kings. How do they live? They live for, pro they live for approval. What do they use? They use power. But in the end, the kingdom of man is defeated. The kingdom of man dies. The glory of man is gone, right? It's, it's all symbolized in Herod's death. Because Herod is an earthly king using earthly power with earthly means, because he doesn't give glory to God, he's killed. And his kingdom, um, his, his kingship is over. So you have that kingdom, and then compare that with the kingdom of God. Compare that with the church. Compare that with God's kingdom, right? How does, how does the church live, or how should the church live? The church should live for God's glory. Uh, the church lives for God's approval. The church uses God's means. We don't use power. We use meekness and humility. Uh, the church lives uh, not pridefully, but humbly. humbly. So there's a great contrast here between the church and the way the church lives and the church operates, or the way it should, and the kingdom of man and how it operates and how it lives and how it functions. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, do we live differently? How do we live in a world that opposes Christ and his church? We live differently, right? We, we, we strive to live differently than the world, right? If the, the world lives for the glory of man and for building its own kingdom, then the church lives for the glory of God. If the, the, the world uses power to get its way, the church uses humility 
and service and meekness. The church, uh, seek, or the world seeks approval of, of this world, the people in it. The church seeks God's approval, right? It seeks his glory and his good. Um, this changes the way we look at our money, our time, our service, all those things. It changes the way we operate. It changes the way we think about our past, our present, and our future. Um, it changes the way we view our success. Right? It changes the way we view our success. I, I, there's an article that came out this week about Kevin Durant. Oh, can we talk about Kevin Durant? In our, is it too soon still, two years later? But Kevin Durant, NBA basketball player, used to play for the Thunder, left the Thunder to go to the Golden State Warriors to win a championship. And after, you know, after his first year, they won the championship. And this article was talking about how in his first 10 seasons in NBA basketball, Kevin Durant was only ejected one time from a basketball game. And this season alone, well, this season, he was ejected five times in one season. And so they were sort of asking him, like, what's, what's the cause for this? Why? Why have you been ejected so much more? And this is what he says. It's just, it's just my emotions and my passion for the game, Durant said after a Friday's practice session. After winning that championship last season, I learned that much hadn't changed. I thought it would fill a certain void. It didn't. That's when I realized in the offseason that the only thing that matters is this game and how much work you put into it. You see that? He got the thing that he had put in putting his hope in. He put his hope in winning a world championship. And when he won that world championship, what happened? Nothing. There was still a void. And it, that void caused anger and frustration. I'm, I'm sort of connecting the dots here. That void causes anger and frustration, and he takes it out. And now he's got to put his hope in something else. He's got to put his hope in the passion, his passion for the game. And I read that, and I just thought, man, um, how, how do I put my hope in other things that let me down? Right? It, it, you know, you can have your greatest success, your greatest achievement. You put your hope in those things, and what's going to happen? They're going to let you down. They're going to disappoint you. And our emotions are going to show that. And, and, what, and how we're going to live differently as the church is whenever we, uh, when we are successful, when we do achieve our goals and our dreams, we look at that and say, that's good. I can enjoy that. I'm thankful. But that's not my hope. My hope is in Christ. And people are going to, around us will notice that. It will begin to smell that. And it will look different than the world. Because for the world... Their hope is in these things. Their hope is in earth. And so they live in such a way that everything is built on their work or their money or their sports team or their theology or their books or their whatever. They find something to put their hope in. Right? But we live differently. And we also live differently in the midst of suffering. Uh, we live differently in the midst of suffering because our hope is not in this world. It's in, uh, it's in a different kingdom. It's in a kingdom that's coming. Uh, this year, we, went to, we took our students to Houston. We did some service work down there. And while we were there, uh, we helped a lady named Regina. Uh, her house was flooded and destroyed by uh, the hurricane. So our job was to come in and take everything out, rip everything down, take the walls down to the studs. Um, 
And as we're reminiscing about this, Claire, I can't take credit for this, so i got to give it credit to Claire. Um, as we were talking about this passage, Claire said, it's kind of like whenever we went to Houston. Um, we were, we were, there was this kingdom that was there, and that kingdom was destroyed, and we were tearing it all down. We were tearing it all out. But it was okay because we knew that a better kingdom was coming. When we face sufferings and we face trials in this life, we can face it, we can own it, we can admit that it's hard and it's painful and there's a struggle and we don't like it, but we can also be okay. We can have hope in the midst of it because we know that there's a greater kingdom coming. As Peter says, we do not grieve as those without hope. We grieve as those with hope. So we live prayerfully, we live confidently, we live differently, and lastly, we live under the word of God. And maybe all things because of the word of God. And all these things are tied into verse 24. Luke is masterfully setting this up for this great contrast. 20, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, where they had completed their service, beginning, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Uh, every, in every... After every major section of the book of Acts, you see this sort of summary statement, but the word of God increased, but the word of God multiplied, but the church was built up. And, and it's, it's fascinating because what Luke describes is the word of God not as just some books written on a page, or not even just the words that are coming out of my mouth, but as a life-giving force that is moving out and building up the church, and restoring all things, and changing things. It shows the word of God as something powerful. And so how do we live in a world that opposes Christ and his church? We live under the word of God. We live connected to that word of God. Because it is, because it is true, and it is good, and it is powerful. I love the way uh, uh, James Montgomery Boyce sort of describes the word of God, uh, and, and how it's um, and its effectiveness, and why it's unstoppable. And he says, uh, the word of God is powerful. He said the word of God is something that is effective and penetrating and life-giving and eternal. Uh, Isaiah says the word of God d- does not go out void. Uh, in, in, the 17th, in the 1700s, there was a French historian named Voltaire, uh, and Voltaire was sort of famous for ridiculing the church. And he said that in 50 years, nobody's going to, Jesus is going to be totally irrelevant. And the same year that he said that, a manuscript was sold to a British museum, a Bible manuscript, for $500,000. And his book was available in a bookstore for eight cents. Fifty years later, in Geneva, his home city, there was the printing, pl- the printing press that was printing thousands and thousands of Bibles that would go out and change the course of human history. Why was the Bible so much more uh, valuable and important than Voltaire's books? Because it's powerful. Because it's life-giving. Because it's life-changing. Uh, the Word of God is powerful. The, ber- the Word of God reveals. The Word of God reveals what God is doing in this world and is doing in our lives. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was a, on the Colbert Show, Somebody told me this. I don't watch the Colbert Show on a regular basis. But somebody told me that Jordan Peele 
was on the Colbert Show. Jordan Peele is a director. He directed a movie called Get Out. This is not an endorsement. This is just a story. Never seen the movie. But he was, he was telling, you know, he was talking to Jordan Peele, Colbert was, and he said, what is the most interesting thing that you've done lately? And he said, well, the most interesting thing I've done lately is I went to a film class at UCLA. And when I went to class, I didn't let the, I tried not to let them know who I was. I put on a hoodie. I kind of sat in the back, and I just wanted to listen. Well, you know, he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Eventually, he raised his hand. He asked a question. He started talking to the professor, and the professor figured out that it was Jordan Peele, this famous director. So he said, hey, I want you to come up stage. So, we, so Jordan Peele came on stage, and all the students just started peppering him with questions. Why would you do this in the movie? Why would you do that in the movie? What was the meaning of this? What was the meaning of that? And, and Peele began to answer those questions and reveal what was going on in the movie. That is very similar to what God does in his word. What if you could ask God questions? What if you could ask God what he's doing in your life and in this world? You can. And he speaks to you, and he speaks to you through his word by his spirit. So we can come to him and his word, and we can ask him questions, and we can bring our our heart and our soul and our mind, and we can cry out to him, and he speaks to us through his word. The word's powerful. The word reveals and the word is good. Uh, I think one of the, the hardest things for students to believe about the Bible right now, and maybe sort of the overwhelming question in our culture, is not just is the Bible true, but it's is the Bible good? Is it good? Is there a good story here? And I want to say yes. I believe yes. I believe the Bible is true. Uh, I believe the Bible is good also. And the, and the Bible tells a story that is true and good, and that story is about a father who comes to rescue his people. Uh, this story is a story about the, as the, the Jesus Storybook Bible says, the never giving up, always and forever, uh, unbreakable love of God that rescues his people. There was an article I read not long ago about a Chinese father who had lost his daughter. They were in a market. He was working. Uh, he went someplace to do something real quick. When he came back, his daughter was gone. They used all the normal means to look for her, but they couldn't find her. So then he set out doing whatever it took to find his daughter. She was lost for 24 years. During that time, he became a taxi driver, hoping that his daughter would get in his car so that he could recognize her and he could find her. He had an artist draw up a picture of what they thought she would look like 24 years later and then began spreading it via social media. And one day there was a girl looking on the internet. She stumbled upon this article about a girl who was lost and a picture, and she said, that picture looks like me. So she tracked down the father. They went to the, the hospital. They did a DNA test, and the DNA test came back positive. And sure enough, that was his daughter. She had wandered away and gotten lost that day in the market, and somebody thought she was abandoned, so they took her and put her up for adoption, and somebody else had taken her. What I love about that story is it shows that that father would do whatever it took to find his daughter. That's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that our Heavenly Father would do whatever it took to rescue us. And you know what it took to rescue us? It took his son, his beloved son, his only son, the word of God becoming a man and putting on flesh. What does John say? In the beginning was the word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So think about it. The Word of God is not just letters written on a page. The Word of God is not just the preaching and teaching that comes from this pulpit. The Word of God is a person of love that came and pursued us and put on flesh. That that word put on flesh, that word dwelt among us, that word lived a perfect life. The word died a sacrificial death. And then guess what the word did? The word came out of the grave. This one commentator said this uh, picture, this story of Peter being rescued is a picture of the church being freed. It's a picture of our salvation. And I thought to myself, it's also a picture of Jesus coming out of the grave. The rulers of this world, the kings of this world, thought they could stop the church. They thought they could kill Jesus. But they couldn't. And in the end, his death is actually the thing that led led to their defeat. They killed him. He got up out of the grave. He defeated sin. He defeated death. And guess where he is right now? He's seated in heaven. The word of God is seated in heaven. And he is a powerful, life-giving, active force that is at work in our lives. And because he's seated in heaven, the church is unstoppable. And the kingdom is unstoppable. Satan has a mortal wound. He will be defeated. The kingdoms of this world will come to nothing. And that's where our hope lies. You see, this passage is is not just a, you know, in this sermon, hopefully, is not just a how-to sermon on how to live in this world that opposes Christ and his church. It is a sermon about us being in Christ. And because Christ, the word of God, has defeated Satan, sin, and death, then we have defeated Satan, sin, and death. And we don't have to live in fear. We can live in confidence and hope, knowing that no matter what happens here, that we are going to be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the church will live, and the gospel will go out, and people will be rescued. That's our hope. That's our future. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you that he is the word and was the word, and he came to rescue us. And Father, I pray that as we um, understand more and more what that means, that you would help us to live in this world, um, and that you would use us to redeem it. Pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.